Every year I look forward to this time where I can speak to you heart to heart. And this is a time that I really cherish, uh, a time that I can speak how I feel, how I perceive as God is leading our church uh, in the direction that He wants us to go. So, so good to see you here. When some of you heard that I'll be preaching from the book of Jonah for the CNN Pastor series, I kind of detected an amused expression like, really? Uh, I know where you're coming from. You know, the book of Jonah sounds like a fiction because it's an incredible story of a man swallowed by a big fish, right? But remember, Jesus mentioned Jonah as a historical figure. In the book of Matthew, chapter 12, verses 40 to 41, uh, in the next slide, he says, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The man of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with his generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Jesus is saying, If I going to the grave three days and three nights to die for your sin and rise again the third day is an historical fact, and since Jonah is my type, using the biblical language as kind of represent me in those days, but giving a hint or giving a, 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 a shadow of what I will be doing 700, 800 years later, it must be true then. Otherwise, I will not use Jonah. If the audience that he was preaching, the Ninevites, will be standing up against this generation and judge them and say, you guys are not believing in the gospel that, that God has ordained and accomplished for you, then Jonah must have preached to the Ninevites. It was an historical fact. But more importantly, Jesus is saying, something greater than Jonah is here. That's me. Jesus is the true and better Jonah. The book of Jonah is not a fiction. Jonah is a historical figure, but Jesus is the true and better Jonah. Jonah preached to Nineveh, Christ died for the whole world. Jonah refused to obey initially, Christ in absolute submission to the will of God was preparing himself to go to the cross. Jesus is a true and better Jonah. You know, many Christians consider Jonah as a story for Sunday school children. It's a good story. Uh, it's captivating, adventurous enough to hold their attentions. And it has good morals like the story of Pinocchio, remember? It's good for kids, but adults, well, we need something more serious. But I can assure you, the book of Jonah is very serious, prophetic book. Its message will make you squirm uncomfortably. It cuts deep into your heart and it confronts you with issues that you have been avoiding. That's the book of Jonah. All the other prophetic books in the Bible focus on God's messages for the people whom the prophets were called to serve. But Pro Jonah is the only minor prophet focusing on the prophet himself. He is the message. So today, I want to begin with that series on chapter 1 and learn from Jonah the call to obedience. 
Okay, if you have the Bible, turn with me to Jonah chapter 1. 17 verses. It's a familiar story. I'll just go quickly and read to you, and then we'll expound on God's word. Jonah chapter 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against it, for the evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. He paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord heard a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid and even cried to their gods. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and laid down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to me, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give you a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. And they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? And where do you come from? And what is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I'm a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, and make the sea and the dry land. And the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the man knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Verse 11, Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? But the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea, and the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men roared hard to get back to dry land, but they could not. For the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. And therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, has done this as it pleased you. So they pick up Jonah and hurl him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vow. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Heard that before? Many times. Familiar story and familiar narrative from the Bible. Let's begin with God's call. First point, verses 1 and 2. Verse 1 says, Now the Lord of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. Jonah was a prophet to the northern kingdom, and he served around 780 B.C., about 800 before Christ was born, under King Jeroboam II. And that reference is 2 Kings chapter 14, verses 23 to 25. See, God's word came to a prophet, to a servant. And God continues to speak to us even today, if you pay attention to God, because we live by the instruction manual that God has given us. If He's a creator, He knows exactly how we live. And we go through different stages and we go through different eras. And each era, each decade, we face a new challenge. And we need to go back to God's word and say, how should we live then? God continues to speak to us today. The word comes today, still comes today, but the word comes to an individual. Oftentimes, God is raising leaders, like those who stood before you and be prayed over, all the leaders, the deacons and the officers. God often raised leaders to represent Him in challenging times, and we are in the challenging times. In fact, every decade, every millennial, 
It is a challenging time. He's calling his followers to take heed and to respond to him. The word of the Lord came to Jonah. But in verse 2, it says, the word of the Lord came with a mission. There's clear instruction. Verse 2 says, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for that evil has come up before me. Go to that great city, Nineveh. What is so great about Nineveh? Well, Nineveh is great in two, 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 two aspects. One, it is prominent in the influence of the time. It will be becoming the capital city of Assyrian Empire, okay, where all the power base and where all the resources will be concentrated in there. Prominence and influence. That's the first greatness about that city. Second, it's bad. It's the severity of their sins. It's bad. It's wicked. And God calls his servant and says, call out to them, meaning preach against that. Because God has taken notice of their wickedness and judgment is on the way. And that's the mission and that's the message. So God called his servant and said, this is the message, go and deliver as you should be as a prophet. And in many ways, we are also living in a great city, right? LA is a great city, prominent in its influence. We take lead in so many ways. We take lead in passing legislations, environmental bills, set the fashion world, build the movie industries, entertainment industries, and stuff like that. Prominence and influence, but living in this place, we are also keenly aware that this city is also severe in wickedness and sin against God and against the teaching of God's word. And therefore, as God's people living in this city, we need to constantly, continually responding to God's call and to send that message and proclaim that message consistently to the city because the city needs God's word. You know, Jonah is the only prophet recorded in the Old Testament to be sent to a foreign country. All other prophets will speak to the domestic issues of Israel. Now, if Jonah is a Southern Baptist missionary, he would have been sent by the IMB, the International Mission Board. When God calls, a response is expected. A prophet's response should be absolute obedience to God. But Jonah disobeyed. That's the second point. In verse 3, says, but Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. He paid a fare, went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Now, Jonah did rise, but he did the unthinkable as a prophet. He went in the opposite direction that God has instructed so instead of going to Nineveh, which is about 500 miles from that port, seaport Joppa, from Israel, 500 miles in the northeastern direction, 500 miles, he chose to go to Tarshish, which is today's Spain. It's about 2,500 miles away from the seaport Joppa. So five times further 
as God will want him to go if he obeys and to go to Nineveh. You know, scholars will tell you that that's the furthest point that people in those days were able to travel. That's Tarshish. And if there's another city that is further away, I, I believe Jonah will go there too. He just want to run away as far as possible from God. You know, Jonah may be a disobedient prophet, <clears throat> but his theology is correct because you can't fight against the sovereign God. You can't win. So what can you do? You run. He has the right theology, but he was just disobedient. His name means dove, that bird, peaceful bird that we always represent, dove. So he did fly like a dove as fast as he can away from the presence of God. Flee from the presence of God. Three times this expression is mentioned here. Flee from the presence of God. Two times in verse 3, and then following in verse 10, it was revealed again that he was fleeing from the presence of God to the sellers who were asking, where do you come from? Tell us about you. He wants to run away from God, from God's influence over him. That's what it means by flee from the presence of God. Where I will not hear God's voice. I don't have to obey God's instruction. I don't have to live by God's rule. I just be myself. Do what I want. I am the king. I am God. That kind of idea. He wants to be away from God's influence over him. But is it possible? As a prophet, he would have read Psalm 139 and say, where can I hide from my presence? If I go to the sky, go to the heavens, I go to the death, I go to Hades, you'll be there. Light or darkness make no difference to you. You are omnipresent. You are everywhere as you please, as you want. Where can I go from your spirit? He will fully understand that. But his disobeying heart prompted him to take that route, to be traveling as far away from God as possible, away from God's influence over him. For some of you who are in the 50 plus, 50 years and older, you will remember the Beatles. And you will remember one of the members is John Lennon. And you will remember about 50 years ago, he wrote that very popular song called Imagine, right? John Lennon was painting an utopia that if, imagine there's no heaven and no hell and all the people living for today and no countries, so we don't have to fight, nothing to kill or to die for. There's no religion, no God, no possessions, so we all share. No greed, no hunger. He said, then we will be sharing all the world and living in peace. And the world will live as one. Isn't that wonderful? But will it happen? Not likely. Because everything that we take away, we will replace them with a man-made idols. Everything we take away, we replace them, we substitute them with man-made idols. That utopia is not going to happen. 
But when Jonah disobeys, disobedience is the beginning of Jonah's downward spiral. Look at verse 3. Jonah flee from the presence of God. He went down to Joppa. He paid a fare and went down into it. If you look at verse 5, that downward spiral continues. Jonah went down into the inner part of the ship, and he laid down and was fast asleep. Running away from God, oftentimes, it's a downward spiral. You know, some Christians may assume that because circumstances are favorable, then they must be coming from God and, God, and, and receive God's approval. See, Jonah was able to buy a ticket to Tarshish to begin the journey. And, you know, I don't know how many times Christians will pray, God, if it is your will, let me get the tickets. God, if it is your will, let me get this. Lord, if it is your will, let me get a job. Lord, if it is your will, let me get a promotion. Lord, if it is your will, right? Let me get, get into that school. Is that always God's will? To grant your wishes? Many Christians will see that as a sign of God's blessing. But in Jonah's case, it was not. For this specific case, it was not. And a commentator says you cannot always interpret the good circumstances as being God's will and the unfavorable circumstances and not being God's will. What about Paul sitting in a prison testifying for, for Jesus? What about Peter being in prison as well for the sake of the gospel? That is prosperity gospel if we do that. But in life, we have good times and bad times, even as Christians. So the ready way is not always the right way. Jonah used the ready way to forsake his calling as a prophet. How right can it be? Some servants of God have resisted God's will and God's call initially or argue with God when an assignment was being placed on their servant like, like Moses, like, like Elijah, right? But Jonah disobeyed God's call by running away. He might be the only one doing that. When do we run away from God? We do run away sometimes, right? Sometimes we wrestle with God's will and say, why? Why? Sometimes when things don't go our way and things that are uncomfortable, we're like, why do I have to comply? Why do I have to do it? You know, obedience is always a wrestling of two wills, of two powers. My will and God's will. My power and God's power. My teaching and God's words teaching. Which one should win? Oftentimes, we are in that wrestling match or tug of war. Sometimes we win, other times God wins when we submit to Him. When we suffer, who can take suffering? Especially long suffering. Who wants suffering? I don't want that too. And we, when we are put into that situation, you can give me all the verses and say, well, there's a thorn in my flesh, and Paul says, my grace is sufficient for you, but the pain is on me. And we wrestle with that. You know, if you look at Jonah's disobedience, and look at God's mission, 
God's call was very straightforward, very simple and straightforward. Go to Nineveh and, and call out to them that their sin has come before me, their wickedness has come before me. Ask them for repentance. A simple gospel message that we all know. Believe in Jesus, confess your sins, and be reconciled with God the Father. But look at Jonah's escape route and how he planned his escape to run away from God. It was elaborate. It was intentional. And he was very emotional. If you follow that narrative and feel for Jonah, he was not a happy man. He was angry, like a child throwing a tantrum. Or a teenager holding up his fist, shouting, leave me alone. Let me live my life. You know, we are not ready to deal with the reason why Jonah ran away yet. We will deal with that in chapter 4. That's the fourth week when we preach. Now, it's all about running away from God. But you know better. With God, you can run, but you can't hide. So Jonah acted like the prodigal son in so many ways. He was defiant, disrespectful. He dived into a destructive lifestyle to run away from God, and he ended up in despair. Jonah, the prodigal prophet. But even in all this disobedience, God shows mercy. God shows mercy in verses 4 to 17. You were like, what? That's not the story I understand. I thought God sent a ship and a storm and a great fish to punish him, to judge him, because he was disobedient. It seems like God is pursuing a wayward prophet through a ship and a storm and a great fish until he falls on his knees, begging for forgiveness from the almighty God. And God seems to be ruthless and oblivious to the welfare of the bystanders causing collateral damages to the sellers, to ships, to the goods, and all that stuff. But you know what? We are wrong because God is merciful. And God did three things to show his mercy. First of all, God sent a storm to stop Jonah. Verses 4 and 5. A storm to stop Jonah. We thought God judged Jonah by sending a storm and make life difficult for him, make him suffer. But it is an act of God's mercy. He stirs up a storm to stop Jonah from fleeing. But you know what? Jonah became more defiant in the midst of the storm. Verses 5 says, the, the mariners were afraid, and if you cry out to the Lord, they hurled the cargo and was in a ship into the sea to lighten it for them. They did everything they could, but Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship, and it lay down and was fast asleep. He wanted nothing to do with God. In today's turn, he deletes God from his contact. He blocks any calls from God. He turns off the cell phone. He takes out that SIM card so you can track me. So fine, my apps wouldn't work. And he just hibernates in today's term. 
and he was in the depths of the ship, in the lowest deck, sleeping. Like, God, enough, don't come to me, I'm okay, you know, let's move on, you go your way, I go my way. Have you ever been through that? Have you ever been through that? God, leave me alone. God, I'm okay with you, but please, you go your way, I go my way. If I need you, I'll call you. But when you call me, you need my permission, please. We deal with God like we deal with human, like you deal with the boss. <laughs> Isn't it interesting? We just cast our human relationship with a human relationship with God, a mighty God, a creator. And like, call me first. Make an appointment to see me. But God is so merciful. A storm is sent to stop Jonah from running away, to fall deeper and deeper into that downward spiral. And secondly, this is very interesting. Verses 6 to 16. The pagans, the sellers, the seamen, the mariners, they confront Jonah in a very, should I say, ironic way? It shouldn't be like that. To actually witness a role reversal that the prophet should be doing what prophet is doing, but the prophet refused to do his job, and the sellers, the pagans, actually played the role of the prophet and said, you pray, you need to pray. You need to be revived, Jonah. Those messages should come from the lips of a prophet, but it came from the lips of the pagans. Verse 6, so the captain came and said to him, what do you mean, you sleeper? Arise and call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give you a thought to us and that we may not perish. This is the pagan captain calling to Jonah to revival and prayer and to remember God's mercy. Right? If I apply to FCBC Walnut, it's like our cleaners, they're very faithful. Every week they're here. And in some ways, they see the activities of the church and they say to the lead pastors and me and the senior pastors and say, you know, pastors, I've been with you guys for three months now. I don't mean to be offensive, but I think your church should pray more. He's like, whoa. I thought it should come from, from us, right? Or the security guards talk to me and say, you know, you're the senior pastor? Yeah. You know, I want to say something. Is that okay? Sure. I've been at Petronius place and see you guys and try to keep place safe. But you know what? I'm not a Christian, but can I say something? Okay. When I patrol around and I see this neighborhood and said, you know, what if this church opens up to them and invite them to come in? I think you guys should do more outside of the four walls of the church. It's like, whoa. <laughs> I thought it should come from the senior pastor or the lead pastors as we lead the church, right? And this cleaner or security guards, I don't know if they are Christians, but most likely they are not. And they begin to speak the Christian language. They begin to cast a vision for you 
and they begin to challenge you and say, you know what, if you do that, it will be more Christian-like. Whoa. That's what happened to Jonah. The pagan captain basically responded to him and said, be revived, pray, prophet. <laughs> you know, for a pagan who worship idol, their understanding, their theology of what is God is that gods can be bribed with offering of sacrifices. You give them good things, then God is nice to you. You can bend the will of gods to your own favor because the gods, the idols that they worship are man-made. You made it for your own favor. You make it for your own self, for your own welfare. And he was saying to Jonah in that pagan theology and said, you know what, if you pay God, maybe he will be merciful. Otherwise, we'll be in dire situation. So the pagan captain basically saying that you are the sleeper, wake up. In verse 7, the pagans cast lots and it fell on Jonah. They are saying, you are the culprit. Now we know. Verses 8 to 10, when they ask about his historical background, his curriculum vita, his resume, and say, oh, you are a Hebrew and you run away from God, you hide away from God, they will confront Jonah most likely and say, you are the rebel, the sleeper, the culprit, the rebel now. Jonah was exhibiting the utmost defiance that any human being could do, which is defiance against God, your creator. It is unthinkable even to pagan worshippers. The scratches is not possible. You can't do that. Pagan worshippers who have to earn their way into heaven know that they can't afford to offend gods because it would cut them out automatically from salvation. That's their theology. And to see a prophet who worship Yahweh, the creator of the universe, and still be disobedient to God, it's absolutely unthinkable, impossible, not likely. Well, at least the pagans wouldn't do that. Verses 11 to 13. And they say, what, what should we do now? They say, well, if you pick me up and hurry me into the sea, and the sea will quiet down for you, for I am the cause of all the storms and all these problems to you. But guess what? The pagans show mercies to Jonah. They were merciful to a prophet who was called to be merciful to the pagans in Nineveh. You see that role reversal? That ir irony? That the message comes from a wrong person, a wrong lips. It should come from the prophet, but because of disobedience, everything is upset. The whole paradigm shifted. Everything is changed. Now they are the messenger. And call the church and call Jonah to be accounted for. It makes you uncomfortable. It makes me uncomfortable. To see that if our church ever comes to the point where our neighbors who are, who are not Christians come to you and say, you know, church, 
I'm your neighbor for 30 some years now. And every year you guys send a Christmas gift to us and thank us because you, you, were, you were afraid or you were, you were sorry that your car might park in front of my curb and that caused unhappiness. We appreciate that. But you know what? I think as a church, you can do more than that. And for 30 years, I've been waiting. If you can do this, wow, that will be really church, you know? That will be really church. And when they confront us, I don't know if I have an answer or if I'm able to respond to that. Role reversal, irony. The pagans confront Jonah to save him from his disobedience to save him from going wayward in a path of no return. God's mercy to the pagans. So the pagans show mercy to Jonah. They did their best. They tried to revert that. They tried to save him. They tried to, to paddle it back to the, to, to the shore and hopefully that they can spare what Jonah himself proposed and just throw me into the sea. They refuse to do that. Merciful pagans. I don't know. They might be saying, you know, you are a hot potato. We don't know what to do with you. We can't get rid of you, but we can't save you either. And then in verse 16, finally, after all the efforts has been put in, they were not able to save him. They were not able to calm the sea because it becomes more and more tempestuous. The sea was raging. So finally, when they confess before God and say, you know, don't, don't let this man's blood, when we throw him into the ocean, be coming upon us because we are innocent. He asked for that. And he said that he's the cause of the storm. So we're just doing what he says, you know, just put him into the ocean. I don't know. I think when the sellers were engaging Jonah in that process of hurling Jonah into the ocean, you know, it's almost like saying, you are Superman now, fly. Or you're a submarine, you know, sail under the ocean. Are you on your own? No, 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 it was not like that. The pagan has shown much mercy to God's servant who was disobedient. In verse 16, the pagan demonstrated faith in God. When the sea finally calmed down, as what Jonah has told them, they have a fear, a great fear for God. They offer a sacrifice and then make vows before God. Many commentators say, well, that's their salvation. Other commentators say, well, it's almost like, you know, a deathbed conversion. It may not last. You know, it may not carry forward. We don't know. But most likely from all the signs that we see, you know, they were genuine. I want you to really look at verses 8 and 9. Because verses 8 and 9 is kind of central in this passage here. You can see the irony. Verse 8, they ask him five questions. They said to Jonah, tell us on whose account the evils has come upon us. What is your occupation? And where do you come from? Where is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, 
I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. The pagan was asking, basically, Jonah, who are you? Not only who are you, but whose are you? Who sent you? Who do you worship? Who is your master? Who is your God? And then Jonah answered, I'm a Hebrew. Well, he gave a partial answer to the five questions. He answered the last three questions. Where do you come from? What is your country? And what people are you? I'm a Hebrew. I'm a chosen people of God. The first question he didn't answer. Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. Well, me. <laughs> and my disobedience. And my refusal to do it God's way. And my clash with God's will. And I overpower God's will with my free will that God has endowed in me. And I pay the price for it. I don't care. It's hard to admit that, right? It's hard to say that, man, I'm sorry, I'm the problem. G.K. Chesterton, a thinker during the Second World War in Great Britain, was replying to a newspaper column who listed out all the problems in those years in society and said, what is the cause of these problems? I bet you and I can give a list after living through COVID-19 and all the political turmoil for the past two years and, and list the problems in LA and living here and security and you know, you know, active shooters and all that things. You and I can give a long list of all the problems that we encounter in living in, in, this, in, in this city. A long list. And then ask, who is the one that causes all that? Why do we have all these problems? G.K. Chesterton, a great thinker, actually replied that editor with one word reply. I. I. I am the problem. You know, it's hard to say that, right? Sorry, I messed things up. I shouldn't have said that. What I say is correct, but my attitude was bad. I'm sorry. You know, I, I have violated that so many times as a senior pastor. I come up too strong sometimes. And I remember this phrase that I even preach about and talk about and illustrate a few times in a sermon, but I still, I still violate that myself. It says, when you are right, when I am right, let me also be kind. When I am right, I don't always show kindness to the people whom I try to argue the case, explain the case, or deal with the case. I. On whose account this evil has come upon us? Jonah should have said, I. But it's hard. It's hard. Secondly, 
The second question, what is your occupation? It's even harder. How do you tell this pagan, I am a prophet, when all these prophetic utterances came from this pagan lips, you know, phrases by phrases and sentences by sentences? Man, they were speaking like prophets. While this prophet of God was forsaking his calling and not doing much. That's hard. He answered the last three questions from the ethnicity perspective to show his identity and responsibility. But on his spiritual identity as a servant of God, as a prophet, that's harder. It's hard to say I'm an engineer in today's world. It's hard to say I'm a Christian engineer. Especially when I'm a conservative, evangelical, Christian engineer. I, I, I feel that in these two verses, verses 8 and 9, Jonah was self-incriminating. This is self-incriminating statements of a prophet. Basically, something that is not being mentioned, but it was so clearly written on the wall. Where is your obedience? Why don't you obey? Why does it have to take this long for you to wake up? And you are still not waking up yet. <laughs> you know, it is often those who know their theology and hold dear to sola gratia by grace alone are most vulnerable to disobey God. Because we know the theology too well, we know how to play with it. It's like the danger of seminarians. When we go through seminaries, all these pastors, the school keep reminding you, don't study theology until you do not believe in God anymore. Do not study theology until you lose your spiritual life. Because we begin to employ that theological knowledge and try to manipulate God. Jonah said he feared God in verse 9. But he refused to obey God when God is not aligned with his agenda. That happens a lot. When God is not aligned with the agenda, obedience is hard. When God blesses you as you hope for, that would be very welcoming. Isn't that true? You know what? The more I preach about this and study the book of Jonah, I can't help it. I think you can't help it either. I see myself in Jonah. Do you see yourself in Jonah? I know Jonah is Jonah, you are you. But in some circumstances, some episodes of life, we are very much like Jonah. And finally, third mercy God showed to him. A great fish saves Jonah. Thank God. God's ultimate act of mercies 
is to confine Jonah in a small space to reflect and not run again away anymore. You know, in the Chinese service, I told them in Chinese language, I can't help it when I was preparing this sermon. I can't help it, but think of that confinement month for mothers who just deliver babies. If you are Chinese, you come from Chinese culture, maybe you still have that practice in your family, like after delivery of the baby, and then they confine you into one whole month in the home, sometimes in the room. <laughs> you can't even come out. Uh, there are all kinds of, all kinds of theories, you know. Uh, don't wash your hair because it will give you headaches. Otherwise, you know, you, you have exhausted all your every ounce of energy to deliver the baby, and you're very vulnerable, so, so it's easy to, to have headaches. Uh, don't take a shower. Uh, you can have arthritis all over as you get older. You know? So we're going to feed you, we're going to give you nutrition, and make sure you are healthy for one month, then you know what? You can last for a long, long time. A confinement month. I don't know how many of you still have that in your family. Maybe not a month anymore, uh, maybe three weeks or two weeks, or maybe not, no confinement at all. But, you know, I feel like Jonah was going through a confinement days, three days. And the purpose of the confinement is to make him sit and reflect and deal with his disobedience. And this is my message to you today. Jonah fled from God's calling while Jesus, the true and better Jonah, submitted to the will of God in securing salvation for us because Jonah is a type of Jesus. And Jesus mentioned that in his own sermons in Matthew chapter 12, verses 40 to 41. And he is the true and better Jonah. Some of you are looking forward to the senior pastor series. You're waiting for some initiatives that I might be sharing with you. You're hoping for uh, something exciting and challenging for us to come into the new church year. I don't know, this year I might be disappointing you because I don't have a new initiative for you. We have new facilities. We reach out to our neighbors. And next Sunday, the Kansas congregation is going to host a mooncake festival, mid-autumn festival uh, of the of Chinese festival. Last year, they attracted 500 people. This year, they expect 700. And of the 700, half will be unchurched. Great things, wonderful things. But I don't have something like that to share with you today. Today, I just want to say we have a vision to be a vibrant church of disciple makers that reproduces vibrant churches locally and globally through three avenues. God's word, faithfully preaching God's word, God's family, spiritual family, your, your own family, and God's world, that's mission, global missions. And through these three avenues, we want to continue to be disciple makers of a vibrant church. And we want to be loving, passionately, 
We want to be living authentically. We want to give generously. We want to go courageously. And these are indicators of how vibrant we are. And every group, every congregation will have to unpack that, what it means to you, what it means to the young people, and what it means to the seniors and the older ones. But today, I just want to say this, that in order to build a great church that will have a high view of God, high view of Scripture, we will have to be embarking on this journey together with this understanding that we need to be consistent over a long period of time. Most likely every year you will hear all the pastors saying, a vibrant church of disciple makers, because we haven't reached it yet. It's a long way to go. We, want to, we don't want to change our topic every, or our theme every year. And before you get to it, you know, you change a new theme. This is our vision. And this is the call of God. And this is Christ's command to the church, make disciples of all nations. So we intend to be a vibrant church, a lively church of disciple makers. Are we there yet? Not yet. Are we going in that direction? Yes, we are. Every congregation, every small group, every ministry, you don't need to come up with a vision statement. This is your vision statement to be a vibrant church of disciple makers. And for the worship team, like, how can we lead worship and demonstrate to be a vibrant church of disciple makers? How do we do that? And a small group will ask the same questions. As women of faith, how do we demonstrate that we can be a vibrant church of disciple makers through our small group? Love, love passionately. Where can we start learning how to love? Let, let's be accountable to this. Let's start with this step and be accountable for three months and see if God will change our lives and change those around us. Consistency over a long period of time. You see, there are so many attractions out there. I like the way Eugene Peterson describes the book of Jonah when he wrote that book that really influenced me, Under the Unpredictable Plant by Eugene Peterson. He said, you know, going to Nineveh is boring. You are dealing with sinners. You are dealing with stubborn people. They may push back. The result is not assured. When you go to Nineveh, you know, you expect those things. But you know what? Tarshish, Tarshish is interesting. It's a new and favorite holiday destination. It's in Spain. Remember the beaches and the suns? Barcelona, remember? That's a great place to be. And he said, if you go to Tarshish and, and stop by the, the travel agent in Joppa and try to book a ticket and book a ship and buy into a package, in those travel agents on the wall, they have pasted different posters and packages. Tarshish, 10 days tour, 2,500, airfare included. It is so attractive. It is so exciting. And to embark on that. But God says, go to Nineveh. Go to Nineveh. And God is saying to us, just be a vibrant church of disciple makers. 
you are not even able to reproduce a vibrant church either locally and globally yet. Just begin to work on being a vibrant church of disciple makers and work hard year after year, year after year, until you can reproduce that model in other church plant locally or overseas. Just work together, consistency over a long period of time. For the past two, three years, we have been invited to join this and join that, join this walk and make a statement, buy up this package that will change your church, revolutionize your ministry, expand this and expand that. Almost every week, all the pastors receive all these posters from Jopa's travel agent. We can help you to increase your budget. We can help you to increase membership. We can help you with your building program. We can help you in discipleship. They are great people, and they have good packages. I don't know if our church wants to be engaged in all this different rabbit trail, chase this and chase that. This doesn't work for three years. We change another one. That doesn't work for three years, and let's, after three years, let's change again. We just want to be consistent over a long period of time by building a vibrant church of disciple makers. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, I ask that you will call our church to the vision that you have given us for eight years now, and we're still running with it, to be a vibrant church of disciple makers that reproduces vibrant churches locally and globally. Lord, we know not every small group is having the buy-in, and not every individual is having the buy-in yet, but Lord, we will continue to work on that until we have more and more buy-in and more and more demonstration of such discipleship lifestyle in our congregation. And then we can reproduce that in other places and bless other people. That's our commitment. But I pray that together as a church, this is where we're going. And we look forward to your blessings, using us to be a blessing for others. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.